Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI FM, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. I would like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. He's a wonderful singer-songwriter. I love the work he does, and we're fortunate to have him with us every week playing his theme song for us. If you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can reach me through my website. I would love to hear from you. And if you would like to hang around in person or really hang around on a Zoom call, every Saturday, my creative business partner, and I get together. Her name is Allegra Houston, and we do a Zoom call called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. It's it's something that we keep our doors open for everyone, and you can join it and write with us for an hour. And all you have to do is go to imaginativestorm.com, and there you will find the link to the Zoom call. So if you are so inspired to have a little bit of fun on Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon, Eastern Time, 5 p.m. London Time. Please, we would love to have you be with us. Thank you, Devine Dial, for the wonderful um, managing you do at WPVMFM. We really do appreciate that. And if you've been listening to this show, you know I have all kinds of guests every week. Sometimes I, I do it solo occasionally, and sometimes I'll have a guest I've never met before. Sometimes I have people I've known for a long time, and other times I have friends whom I've known and and still getting to know and, and working with. And today I have such a friend on. Her name is Lucinda Delormier. She is a storyteller. She's a, a woman of words. She's a conversationalist, a thinker. I've been very fortunate to get to know Lucinda because she and her friend Regina Ress host a small gathering of storytellers once a month. It's by invitation, and I was invited to come be part of it. And it's a, a workshop kind of environment, a, a salon, if you will. And I've learned many things from Lucinda. And one of the things I've learned is that she is a master storyteller, among other things. So Lucinda, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Nave. I really appreciate you saying yes. It's always meaningful when somebody says, sure, I'll be glad to join you. I am. I am very glad to join you in, in this uh, adventure. Would you use the word adventure? And you said adventure with a smile on your face and a little shiny gleam in your eye. Why is the word adventure so significant for you as a storyteller? Good question. Right now, I feel I'm in the middle of an adventure that I realize my passion. I will be attending a workshop next month that is centered on a certain old English folktale. When I heard about this and signed up for the workshop right away because I was intrigued by the folktale, I, I remembered that long, long ago, probably at least 30 years, in some book somewhere, I had read this story that prompted me to set out on an adventure of finding it. Now, I know that the workshop leader will be presenting 
her own version of the story. And she's found a couple of different kind of more contemporary versions of it, but I wanted to find the root of the story. So it is an adventure for me. And I have an enormous bookcase filled with stories, uh, collections of folk tales, legends, history, and even a big fat motif index, which helps me to find different versions of stories. So for me, it's an adventure. And not only did I find eventually by, you know, it took me a couple of weeks. I looked through all my books of English folk tales. Then I looked through some other collections. A couple of weeks went by and I thought, why don't I look in the motif index? In the motif index, I found that I did have that story. It just had a different title. Then I found that it probably originated in India. Then I found that there's a version in Patagonia, an old, old story from Patagonia of all places. And so that's an adventure to me. So when I work on stories and I like to find the cultures and look into the cultures and see what the influences are from the different cultures on, on the story, that's adventurous. And you're choosing one folk tale to explore to adventure into a lot of people listening to this show are writers storytellers poets they're in the creative arenas or leaning in that direction and they would like to do similar things they have an urge to create something maybe tell a story you are a master storyteller you've been at it a long time and feel free to tell us a little bit of that history if it if it weaves throughout our our conversation why is one story so important? What's the what's the core there? What's the seed? What is the energy that you hope to find when you dig down to the core of that story? Good question. I have found that these old stories choose me. I like to expose myself to stories of all kinds, personal stories, history stories, uh, uh, folk and fairy tales, the legend, ghost stories, our legends, and so on, because one of them will come out and say, tell me. So I will follow that one and find out as much about it as I can. Sometimes I'll hear this story at a storytelling festival. And of course, you know, the etiquette, you go to that teller and ask, is this a story that I may retell, please? Sometimes you are not given permission and that's fine. And sometimes, yes, go ahead, please do. This is a story that deserves to be told more. Part of my passion is letting that story choose me. It's important for me to get into the core of a story because If it chooses me, if there's that mutual attraction, there is something I need to learn from that story. It becomes a personal story. Sometimes it takes 10 to 15 years before I know why. A lot of times I'll be telling a story again after many years and I'll realize, oh, that's what went on in the past. You know, I get my 2020 (laughs) vision going way back and see, okay, this is a story that helped me through that situation. And I think it works the same for not all, but some of your listeners. If you're telling stories to children, 
you know, kids have problems in life and they're little and they're often powerless. And when they hear a story about a kid that can best the odds and come out ahead, they bring that into themselves and know that they too can use their resources. There, there's a lot of kids' literature out where the kid picks up a weapon to resolve the problem. And in the old, old stories, they don't do that. They use their resources. They might meet up with a wise person who gives them a gift or an animal who gives them a gift. You know, they might have a special favor that helps them, but they're using their own resources. So when I go on a, a research adventure for a story and get into it more and more deeply and see the different shades that are within it and the layers that are within it, what I'm doing is finding those nuggets in there that help me, help listeners, and, and keep that story alive. Keep it going. It's got a value. Let's honor that value and keep it alive. This story you're going to study in your workshop, could you tell us the narrative through line? Give us an idea of the a little trailer, if you will. I, I would. I, I haven't ever told this story. Well, that's not true. I told it over the phone to my daughter last weekend. It's a scary story. It's sometimes called the dead moon and sometimes called the buried moon. It's from the version that I think we'll be working with most is from Lincolnshire, England, up on the northeast part of the island, south of Scotland. It is about the moon in the sky shining down on a marshland that contains the most horrifying creatures. My favorite are the witches that fly about on big black cats. I'd love to see that. The worst are the hands, the disembodied hands that come up out of the marsh pools to snatch at anyone walking on one of the paths. So the people of the fens know if they are going to go out at night, only go when the moon is bright. Do not go into the marsh when the moon is dark. So the moon got curious. She would see people rushing about when she was full at night, going here and there, visiting other people, doing this and that. But as she waned, she saw people being sparse walking about. So she decided to check it out on the dark of the moon, which is kind of her day off. She put on a cloak. It had a hood. She wrapped herself so the light wouldn't shine out. She put the hood over her head because her hair, she had long, brilliant light hair and only her feet shone. And she went down into the marsh she walked along and these hands were clutching at her cloak and and she saw what what was going on she realized why people stayed away when she was dark 
as she went along, she was actually leaping from tuft of marsh grass to tuft of marsh grass. She wasn't even on a path. She slipped and she was by one of these big tree snags. These would raise up out of the marsh when the waters would move over trees and kill them. Those trees would eventually come up out of the water. Well, she was right by a great snag when she slipped and was about to fall into these waters where there were innumerable creatures waiting to get her. She grabbed the tree and two tendrils came from the tree, wrapped around her wrists and trapped her. She couldn't move. She struggled. She fought. But then she heard a voice. Someone was crying for help. Someone was shouting and moaning, wailing, help me, help me. I'm lost. I'm lost. She soon saw through the darkness a man who was off the path. Well, it was the dark of the moon. But this man had ventured out and he was seeing the will-o'-the-wisps, the lights, thinking that they were someone's house on the edge of the marsh. And he was getting more and more lost, further and further off the path, about to be engulfed by these wicked beings. Well, she thought somehow maybe she could help him if she could only get her hands free from these snags, these tendrils from the tree. So she struggled and struggled. Her hood fell back and that brilliant hair lit up the entire marsh. The man was able to see his way back to the path. He ran for it and made it home safely. Well, that didn't do the moon any good because those creatures turned and saw their nemesis. They saw that it was that moon who always kept them hiding when she was shining brightly. They only got to come out and hunt a few days of each month. So they came for her and they pulled at her. She struggled. They were able to get her free of those tendrils around her wrists and they pushed her down under the water and took a great, long, oddly shaped stone and put it over her so she could not rise or get out ever. Time passed. The people looked for their moon to come back. They waited and the sky stayed dark. Well, no one could go anywhere at night anymore. It didn't get bright out at night. It got so bad that the creatures from the marshes started coming up to their houses. They couldn't even step out of their doors or something was waiting there. They went to the wise woman who lived at the mill, of course, of course, she lived at the mill and asked her what to do. They, they told her of their troubles and, and the darkness at night, no light. She looked in her book, she looked in her pot, she looked in her glass, but nothing came forth. So she said, go out and ask everybody if they've seen anything. Consult your community. Well, they did, they went out and one night they were at the pub, people were at the pub, they were sitting on the long settle and asking around and a man said, oh, Oh, I think I know. I think I might know where the moon is. 
And he was that man. I was so unhappy. I had forgotten all of, I just knew I got home safely, but I remember a bright light in the fence and that's what saved me. I think I might know where the moon is. So they all went back to the old wise woman. She looked in her book and she looked in her pot and she looked in her glass and said, you all have to go out looking in the dark, in the marsh, no matter how frightened you are. And you put stones in your mouths so that you don't speak, for that will bring the creatures upon you. And you carry a hazel branch, each of you. Go look for a coffin and a cross and a candle and you'll find the moon there. Well, none of them wanted to go out, but they knew they had to do it. So together they went down the paths as they could find them in the dark, through the marshes, the hands reaching up, grabbing, clutching at them, the witches flying past, waiting for them to get closer everything reaching toward them. And at last, someone spotted an oblong stone with a tree rising next to it that had branches that stood out to either side in the shape of a cross and a titty light, a little light upon that stone. Well, they got together and moved, all shoving together, they moved that stone away. And there she came up out of the dark waters and rose up and up and up into the night sky as we see her now. And that's the story of the dead moon. Thank you, Lucinda. The dead, the dead moon, which rose from, from the water. Yeah. So having only been on the adventure of finding different versions of this story and looking forward to a workshop about it and thinking about, oh, there's a lot to fear in this story. And there's a lot about light. And there are things about maybe silence, keeping a stone in your mouth. There's a lot to it. I, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I've realized that it has chosen me at this point since I have spent a lot of time working on finding versions and, and looking into the cultures. I've looked into that Lincolnshire culture. I'm, I'm not sure about the, the hazel branch. I will keep at it with this story and, and look into that core. As you were telling it, I was, of course, thinking about our current situation in the world and how so many of the elements of that story fit into what's going on globally right now. You have the desire for light and the need to be close to the ones you love. And then we have all of these dark forces. Even now, some people will think one force is dark and some people will think that same force is light. 
So we're in a confusing time right now. And when you were telling the story about the moon being captured and put under the rock, hidden deep down into the in the swamp, I couldn't help but hope someone would come along and help the moon come back up again. And I think this is the cycle that we're in right now. We're trying to figure out how to get the moon up in the sky so that it does give us the luminescence we need to keep our selves balanced, perhaps. Oh, I love that. I love that. Uh, that gives me faith in how the pendulum does swing because, yeah, there is some darkness about. And I love that there was a wise woman as well <laughs> people could go to for help. Where do we find that? Do we find it within ourselves? A lot, yes. And where else? I'm of the mind. Those wise women appear more often in our lives than we think. That wise woman might be passing you by as you walk down the street. That wise woman might be the one who gives a nod to let you turn in front of her as you're leaving the grocery store. Or perhaps the wise woman is the one in the checkout line behind you or maybe checking you out or perhaps you are the wise woman everybody listening perhaps everyone listening right now perhaps you are the wise one behind the counter you are the wise one nodding to let somebody pass by you are the wise one that's listening close enough to the message of the moon's luminescence that you somehow know to notice the person in front of you and acknowledge their existence like the moon acknowledges our existence the beautiful full moon rising up and it shines on us and it's acknowledging all of us so perhaps we are all the wise woman yeah exactly and and where's the light where's the light when you've got the darkness all around and the fears are coming to your door where's the light I'd like to think the light's always shining nearby. Mm -hmm. When I was a boy, I always would try to look at the moon. And my father said, oh, look at the moon. There's a man in the moon. And I tried to see the man in the moon. And all I saw were craters. But I remember as a, as a boy in the warm summertime, the moon would rise. And I would look through my little telescope and the moon would fill up the lens. And I would think, oh, my goodness, there's the moon. And so I've always been infatuated with the, with the moon and all those songs and stories people tell about the moon. You have been telling stories all your life. And in your storytelling life, I'm sure that you have experienced many, many wonderful exchanges with lots of different people. And I know you've learned many stories and you have great stories to tell. I've heard you talk about your life and it's, it's rich and it's varied and it, it's been the kind of life that you've been privileged to live and you've traveled quite a bit. As you move through your life now, how do you use all of this knowledge you have in your daily activities? Oh, good, good question. In my daily activities, you know, I think that narrative emerges as a really important thing for us. As humans on this planet, I think that a sense of narrative 
is a comfort. As you had said, hearing the story of the dead moon, uh, you had hope. You had hope that someone would find her and release her from the marsh waters and up to the sky. When we are familiar with narrative structure, I think we can get through our daily lives better. We kind of anticipate what is to come. And so it's a comfort. If I suppose our, our narratives take tailspins on a regular basis, eh, you got some work to do. I study literature as well. Oh boy, I just picked up Andy Weir's new book yesterday. I can't wait to read some hard science fiction. I look forward to that narrative. I look forward to that framework. I'll enjoy seeing what's next and having a full narrative. And then I hang a lot of my life on that kind of structure as well. Daily life can be an adventure. Just like the passion of looking for stories, daily life can be adventure. What's next? How's it going to go? How can I resolve things? A lot of people listening to this show might want to tell stories. I, I would like for you to give a little bit more of a, an overview of when you say narrative. What do you mean by that? And how do you use it in your life? Or can you give us an example of how you would use it in, in your life? And the reason I ask that, I understand what you mean about narrative in life. And I bet a lot of people out there listening do understand. And I bet they would like for you to, as I would like for you to give a deeper view of your own take on it, just so we can have a better sense for ourselves. A narrative is events taking place in time. What I'll do is look for common threads. In the course of situations in life. For instance, I'm watching a friend go down health-wise. I can look at that in a way of thinking this is a tragedy and we will all suffer greatly. I can look at it as a time of this is an era to treasure this man. This is an era to spend more time with him. This is an era to honor his family. The end of his story is coming in the physical sense but not in any kind of spiritual sense or personal connection sense. I can look at this story as a time to rejoice. You know, this is a narrative that can, that can have a really great ending as I appreciate the 50 plus years of knowing this man and enjoying knowing him. So I would think that we can take our narrative and, and use it for benefit and comfort and not hold a bad ending, hold a tragic ending up as the end of that narrative. So we have that power, all of us, to participate in the narratives that will inevitably unfold in our lives. Life is all about the improvisational narrative. Something is going to happen, even if we don't know what it is. And we have the power to change our perspective, is what I think I hear you saying. It can be tragic or you can celebrate. That's not to say that some things aren't tragic. A lot of things that happen in life are very, very, very difficult. And sometimes those things crush people beyond 
what they think they can bear. And sadly, sometimes people cannot bear it. Funny enough, I think more people are able to bear it than not. And somehow they manage to move it along and come out on the other side with a story that maybe has meaning for somebody else. Yes. And story that one can pass along and give to others, bring that moon's light to, to, to more than just yourself. Yeah. With creativity. How does storytelling inform the spiritual aspects of your thinking? Well, in that stories have fed me, instructed me, comforted me through, well, my whole life. It was mid eighties when I started to actually study storytelling. I, it was kind of interesting. I, I was a young mom. I had a five-year-old and a one-year-old and I was ready to get out and do things. I sent away for information on getting a teaching certificate. And the day that that packet arrived was an inch thick with all the requirements and how I had to take the sea best. And I uh, was going to have to commute you know, 30 miles each way and so on. The same day, a brochure arrived from a local college that was offering through their education department storytelling classes and a storytelling certificate should one wish to pursue storytelling that heavily. And guess which one I did. Uh, <laughs> it was the easy path that day, but that was the phone call made. And so I started taking these storytelling classes. It's been 30, 40 years of uh, delight to plunge myself into that fabulous course. It was invented by Ruth Stotter, another wonderful storyteller on the West Coast at, at a small college, Dominican College. And I started teaching. Once I got my certificate, I started teaching in that program. I taught the core courses and did that for 12 years. So I got to bring more storytellers into the world. Uh, we were a multidisciplinary series of courses, uh, you know, it went from how to use a mic to ancient Irish legends and stories, a wide array of classes. It was an enlivening thing to be able to bring more people out and, and tell more stories. That in turn has given me a lot of life. And Lucinda, on that note, I'd like to pause for just a moment and take a station break. After all, community radio is a form of storytelling, and that's why you're tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, walterparks.com. If you're interested in knowing more about Walter's music, I'd also like to tell you that every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, 5 p.m., 
London time, my collaborative creative partner, Allegra Houston, and I hold a gathering online, a Zoom gathering, called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. And each week we toss out a writing prompt, and the people who show up for the Zoom call will generate some material, and then we read it to each other. It's a bit like storytelling, really. We're generating short little vignette written stories that sometimes make sense and sometimes just seem really kind of fanciful. And funny enough, everybody on the call always offers something that's really rather dazzling. It's remarkable. So if you'd like to be part of our little circle on Saturday morning, imaginativestorm.com is the website you can go to, and you'll find a Zoom link there. If you feel moved to join us, the door is always open. We would love to have you, and and the work helps everybody on the call further whatever creative um, endeavors they're involved in. It stirs the pot, stirs the brain. So imaginativestorm.com, if you're interested in that. And if you would like to reach out to me, send an email or, or whatever, you can always go to my website, jamesnave.com, nave spelled N-A-V-E. There you will find the contact button, and I'll bet you know what to do from there. So I would love to hear from you. What is, what is your story? What are you up to in, in your part of the world? And as always, I'd like to thank Debeen Dial for managing WPVM-FM. We could not broadcast without you, and we're so glad you're there and supporting us. And I say us, which I mean all the contributors and all of the guests on all of the shows. So, Lucinda, coming back to our conversation. So, after you finished your studies as a storyteller, do you remember your first official storytelling gig, your, your booking, when you told your first public story to an audience. What was that like for you? Uh, it was like being on stage at the end of a play when you get that amazing rush and, and want to continue being in, in theater. Uh, I think the first was really telling to my son's kindergarten class and having, I think there were two classes together, so 60 kindergartners and telling them a, a few stories and their mouths are open the whole time and they are in the story a hundred percent. So you realize the connection there. You realize that with storytelling, it's not about you. It's about the story. It's about the story taking over the room and, and allowing you to give it to the listeners. My first paid gig was a disaster. <laughs> so I haven't forgotten that one. It was a Halloween party at a giant preschool. The parents stood with wine glasses and chatted in one end of the room and the kids ran around <laughs> and two or three sat and listened. But uh, yeah, I, I, I learned quickly how not to do a gig. Uh, I was asking that because I remember the first time I went on stage as a teller. I was a poetry teller. People who've heard this show before know that I do that and have done it for a while and had this little company based in Asheville called Poetry Alive. And we memorized poems from the school textbook and perform them as theater. So we had the bright idea in 1984 to start working on a two-hour show of classic traditional poems. And we thought, well, we'll memorize all these poems and present this two-hour theater show. We thought we needed to do a two-hour show because that's how long theater shows usually lasted. So we filled it up with all kinds of 
poems like the, the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe and The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost and The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop and Edna St. Vincent Millay and, 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 and Emily Dickinson. And neither Bob Falls, the fellow that was performing with me, nor I had ever really done a stand-up two-mic show in front of 60 people. I'd never done one in front of one person. And it never occurred to me when we stepped up on the stage that all of those people looking back at me would have individual faces. I was so confused because every face had its own personality. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, how am I ever going to get through this? But somehow, because we'd rehearsed it so much, we managed to to get through it. It was a bit wooden because neither of us knew what we were really doing. And we did raise our voices and we delivered two hours of traditional classic poems to this audience in Black Mountain at a listening room called McDibbs. And afterwards, a teacher from the University of South Carolina, she said, would you two like to come down next March and perform this show for my students? I'll give you 400 bucks. All you have to do is drive to Beaufort, South Carolina. Well, we thought we were rich. My gosh, $400 to go tell us stories. And so off we went and we worked and worked and kept the same show. And, and then the night we did the show, that was our first paid gig. We were invited to perform it in a cafe. Never been in a cafe before. Of course, we'd never had any experience with all the dishes and the banging and the, the staff running back and forth. So we're doing this show for all these students in this raucous cafe with all these people going back and forth, serving food to the audience. And that was my introduction into the refined, beautiful, gracious world of, of professional storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> cups banging and doors and and weird faces floating around but that's my experience with it and um i just i haven't thought of that story in a long time but i thought you might enjoy it because we all have to start somewhere and usually the starting point is the party with everybody drinking wine and chatting and three people in front of you all kinds of loopy things happen when you do this kind of stuff Oh, absolutely. And and you have had experience with poetry in schools and know what that's like. Uh, fortunately, I never told stories to birthday parties. I've done some weddings and baptisms and so on that were a little easier, but you learn. You learn how to catch the eye of the people who will listen to a story. And I love the magnificence of your two hours of poetry. And, you know, if you're telling a story to a group that's distracted, you're not going to get two hours. <laughs> and we had a director who helped us with our movement. So we had a lot of movement and a lot of action. And I think what worked for the two hours, we did have this, the material down enough to be able to keep it moving. And we had split it between two people, so it wasn't like we had to carry two hours as a solo show. We had enough movement in it, and we were so raw that nobody in the room knew what was going to happen. So everybody was like, well, what are these guys going to do next? And we didn't know, nor did anybody else. And so I think that's what kept it going. It, it was a funny experience, but that was 1984. That was a long, long time ago. And it took me a long time 
to learn how to be myself on stage. Yeah. Fortunately, I had had a lot of theater experience, community theater, small time theater. That helped. That really helped. But of course, storytelling is so, so different from theater. You better have the house lights up if you're on a stage in an auditorium because you need to see your listeners. No story is, at least by me, ever told the same way twice because I receive from my listeners feedback. It's innate. You know what parts of the story to emphasize more than others, and it's dependent on your audience. It's not like they're jumping up and down, but you can tell what's more important to them within each story. And that part you will spend more time with and let the characters speak more on that particular piece of the tale. And I never know ahead what part will come out further than the other pieces of the story until it's being told. And that's when, you know, I get to let go and let the story just rip as it needs to be for that particular group of listeners. So it's very different from theater. It's an all-inclusive event. And, you know, you and I have had years of experience in front of audiences and, and doing this. And so it's easy for me to say, oh, I had to learn how to be myself on stage. It's easy for you to say, oh, I had all of this theater experience and now I'm going to let the story come to me. For those listening out there who are just beginning or just thinking about how to do what you and I have enjoyed for so many years, do you have any basic thoughts on how someone would start to feel comfortable telling stories in their own way, in their own style? This is important. Thank you for asking this. I, in my years of teaching storytelling, I, I have had a handful of people who took those classes because of performance anxiety. Business people who had to get up and give presentations and were advised to get out there and take some kind of class and they would wind up in a storytelling class. The best I have of that was passed along by California storyteller Robert Fish long, long, long ago. He had studied Aikido. And from that, he had gleaned a way to get over performance anxiety, no matter what degree it is. And that was when you put yourself in front of others and you see all those faces, all those eyes looking at you, all that energy is coming toward you as though all those eyes are sending arrows toward you. And I think this part must have come from Aikido, but instead of allowing the arrows to pierce you, watch them turn around when they reach you and send them back as love back to those faces, back to those eyes, and let the audience know you are sending them love. You don't say it. You just visualize those arrows turning and going back out with love, and it works. It works. 
I definitely make eye contact with each person in an audience, unless it's one of those festivals where there are 400 people out there. And in that case, you look at the last row or the people standing in the back and try to get eye contact with them as well, because those are our windows and our doors so that the story can move from me all throughout every person listening. But that is, that's the best tip I know. Send those arrows back with love, turn them about, and it brings you all together so that the story will live in the room for everyone. Of course, the idea of the arrows turning into loves quickly suggests that we're all in this together and you are never alone in the room. I often will say to people who ask me to help them with their work, especially if they're beginning, and I haven't done this much because we're always on the Zoom calls. I hopefully will be in person sooner than later. Someone comes to me and they'll say, well, how do I do this? How do I start to feel comfortable on a stage? What, what can I do? And I will often ask them to clear the space, put a chair down where the stage might be, and I'll sit down a distance from them. And I will say, now I'm going to time you for three minutes. I want you to sit there and let me look at you. And at the end of the three minutes, I want you to say your name. I'll give you a signal. And then take a bow and get up and walk off. And then I might have them come back and do it again, but maybe sit a different angle. And then maybe the third time, in the three minutes, I might say, we'll do it five minutes now. And in that five minutes, you sit there. And if you feel moved to make a sound, make it. You could whistle. You could make a blub blub. You could say your name or you might even have a sentence you want to say. And only say it if you feel moved to say it. And let me keep looking at you. And if I have a group of people, say five or six, we will all look at each other with no other obligation, just allow me to see you. And when I see you, I want you to see me. And in between the seeing will emerge the connection because the seeing and the listening are the same thing. Yes, and, and the inclusiveness again is important in that exercise. Oh, that's excellent. It reminds me of one other that I really love that I advise if, you are going to publicly perform, get there early, walk around your space, walk around where your audience will be, walk around where you will be, and pay attention to this. You know how your dog has spots around your house and yard, and your cat has spots? Well, on a stage or any performance space, even if it's just a corner of a classroom, you have spots too. And if it's a small place, probably you have a spot. Walk around, walk around and find that spot. Because if you are there when you are telling or reciting, performing, you're not being blocked by a director, you get to pick your spot and you will be more at ease in your spot. It's there. That's part of finding your style and letting your style find you or letting the story find you as well. It's a meditation as well as an active 
uh, adventure exploration, which is where we started this this conversation. You just reminded me that I wrote a book a couple of years ago, along with my collaborative business partner and creative partner, Allegra Houston. It's titled How to Read for an Audience. And it's a it's a small handbook, really, 100 pages long, and it covers the microphone and it covers what to do when you're in the room and how to answer questions and how to prepare for your show. And when the show starts, the show starts the moment you step out of the car in the parking lot and the moment you walk through the door, you're you're on because you are the presenter. So the little book is called How to Read for an Audience, and you can find it at twice5miles.com, twice5miles.com. It's a good little book. I hadn't thought about mentioning it until you started to talk about working the microphones. So a lot of this stuff is very simple stuff to, to work with. As we close, Lucinda, do you have anything that you would like to say to the audience as a close? And also, please remind folks how to reach out to you, find out more about, about your work. Well, thank you. I think that a piece to know about telling a story to other people is to let yourself be a clear vessel that contains the story. No, and no matter what kind of story it is, whether it's a personal story you've written, whether it's an ancient story, a traditional tale, be that clear vessel to let that story come out and be shared by those to whom you are telling it. To reach me, the easiest way right now is through the Storytellers of New Mexico directory or through the National Storytelling Association, which is called NSN, National Storytelling Network directory. Those both have my contact information and a little bit about me in those. So Storytellers of New Mexico online, it's an easy Google, STNM, Storytellers of New Mexico, or National Storytelling Network, NSN. Both have directories, which are searchable for finding storytellers in your own region when we get back to meeting in person. And make sure you tell everybody how to spell your name so they can find it. That's great. Well, first name is Lucinda, traditional spelling L-U-C-I-N-D-A. And my last name is D-E-L-O-R-I-M-I-E-R. Thank you so much, Nave, for having me on your program. And thank you so much for all of the insight. And thank you ever so much for the story of the moon. I don't know if that moon's dead or alive, but I do believe it rose. So I'm going to say the moon is back where it belongs, shining in the sky. And you've been shining on this interview. So thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. You're very welcome. And that, my friends, was Lucinda Delormier, a New Mexico-based storyteller who's been working in the storytelling business for many, many years. And of course, you may know that the storytelling movement started in Jonesboro, Tennessee in October of 1973 with about 60 people in attendance. And 
Somebody just spontaneously started telling stories, and the next thing you knew, another person did it, and another one, and another one. And after that, they thought it might be a good idea to do it again the next year. And so they did. So thanks to those people who gathered in Jonesboro, Tennessee in 1973, storytelling has become a well-established art form in modern American culture. Of course, as you already know, storytelling is not a modern art form. It's the mainstay of the way we've been communicating as human beings since the beginning of time. And one of the things about ancient art forms like storytelling it has a way of, of forming and reforming itself. That's how come it endures. So we are able to take this old tradition and, and repurpose it into new ways. And I think that was part of what happened in Jonesboro. And that's why storytelling is as popular as it is, because now we have all kinds of ways that we tell stories. People create songs, and within the song, you find a story. People write narrative poetry, and within the poetry, it's you find all kinds of stories. And then people tell personal stories, like on the moth stage. They step up and just tell their story, and people enjoy it because they're coming from an improvisational place, a, a place of of memory that belongs to them and then they're sharing it with other people. So you can see the storytelling action happening on the, the moth stages. Then of course there's the story slam and the poetry slam and the list goes on and on and on. So now it's very easy to find all kinds of festivals and storytelling gatherings almost anywhere you go in any town. And it's also very easy for you to start one if there's not one close by. Just invite some friends over and say, I'm going to have a storytelling evening. I like to say storytelling salon. I don't know about you, but if I get invited to come to a salon, I dress a little snappier. I don't know why I do that. Maybe it's just the idea of the salon that appeals to me. Anyway, regardless of what you call it, if you host something around storytelling, you're likely to learn things about the people that you've known for many years, learn things that you, you never knew before, delightful things. So as we close the show, I do have one little storytelling tip for you. I learned from a friend of mine, Cisco Guevara, who is one of uh, New Mexico's leading river rafting guides, and he owns a wonderful company called Los Rios River Rafting. And Cisco said that he went to a storytelling workshop once, and it was conducted by a fellow who made famous the story as a lie. So everything this fellow told was a lie. Nothing in the story was true. And yet his guarantee, if you can guarantee a story, his guarantee was that even though you know the story is all a lie, you will believe everything in the story. And indeed, that's exactly what happened, or at least that's what Cisco said happened. And of course, you might imagine Cisco being a storyteller was curious. Well, how in the world does that happen? How come I'm believing this fellow, even though I know he's telling me a lie? So in the workshop, Cisco posed the question, how do you do that? How come I believe you? So the fellow said, the primary thing that you can do in storytelling to convince people what you're saying is true, whether it's a lie or the truth, is to use numbers. 
So instead of opening your story by saying a few days ago, say four days ago, around one o'clock in the afternoon after I'd spent 45 minutes having lunch, someone knocked three times on my front door. It had been about four days since the big storm, so as you might imagine, I was wondering what kind of news the three knocks at my front door might bring. Well, I have no idea what the three knocks might bring, but I do know that if you add numbers to your stories, you find them to become a little more lively and, and give it a try, see what happens. And on that note, I'll say that we've spent about 60 minutes together, which is almost to the top of the hour. And I would like to say thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KC. CEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, if you would like to join me every Saturday morning for the Imaginative Storm writing session, writing prompt of the week session, I would love to have you. We just gather on Zoom and everybody writes. So if you'd like to be part of the that storytelling experience, it's always available. The door is always open, imaginativestorm.com. That, of course, is the website where you can find the Zoom link, imaginativestorm.com. You can always reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. So much is going on in the world, so many stories to tell, so much to hear, so much to listen to. And I really do appreciate you listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Thanks so much for listening.